electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And hello, everybody, and happy Tuesday. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly and call this the rising risk of rising rates. As Scott noted, interest rates are on the move, the highest in nearly a year. Could this super tanker swing sink stocks? We'll debate. Energy soaring, not sinking this year. Leading the market again is oil rallies. But do you buy in if you want to get in? Goldman Sachs' Brian Singer with us. He will name some names. And speaking of power, plug power rallying 80% this year. That's in just seven trading days. And surging again today on a big new deal. The CEO will join us in a broadcast exclusive. All right, so much to do on this Tuesday. But let's talk more about these markets and your money. And, and while Scott correctly noted that the overall markets, Dominic Chu, are not moving in a big way either way, it is about this idea of a rotation. It is about rising rates. The domino, what are you looking at, my friend? So many cross currents in the market right now. But as you point out, it's relatively stable. And we've seen both gains and losses. Right now, as things stands, the Dow Industrial is almost flat, just down about 11 points. The S&P off by about eight and the Nasdaq off by about five or just call it flat. At the highs of the day, the S&P was up roughly 10 points at the lows, down roughly 23. Just to give you an idea of the trading range so far, still the S&P 3790, the last trade there. One of those thematic trades that's been playing out for the past few months in a reversal over the past 12 months has been the outperformance of value oriented dividend paying lower valuation type stocks over those tech and growthier type names. These two ETFs track parts of the market. The white line for value and the orange line for growth. You can see here it's been widening out. And by the way, on a year to date basis, the gap is now 4% in just the first few trading days of the year. Just to give you an idea, see if that trend plays out again in the coming weeks. And then take a look at these stocks. What do they all have in common? We're talking about Etsy up 13%, Wayfair up 7.5%, Chewy up 6%, and eBay up 4%. They're all online retail. Now, what does this say? Maybe it's a trade on the surge in COVID. Maybe these online retailers are getting a little bit more optimism from investors. Still, though, watch these trades. Very much green in an otherwise flat session, Brian. Etsy up 13%. That's an all-time high, by the way. Back over to you, Sully. Wow. Buy furniture, pet supplies, and masks or masks for your pets. Dominic Chu, thank you very much. All right, so let's get this ship to sea, shall we? By hitting the great rate debate, bond yields surging lately, the 5, 10, and 30-year Treasury yields reaching their highest level since all the way back in March. A 10-year yield taking a sharp turn upward in recent weeks. It's up 50% in just three months. Why is this important? Well, obviously, it could make things like mortgages and car loans cost a little more, but it's also a competition for equities and can hit valuations because higher rates reduce the value of net present cash flow. Remember that from business school? So where do rates and stocks go from here? Let's ask Shri Kumar, president of Shri Kumar Global Strategies and Chris Zaccarelli, 
Chief Investment Officer for the Independent Advisors Alliance Tree. We've been talking for like, I don't know, 15 years now, my friend, and you've always been out there on your own. And by the way, you have been correct for the last four or five years that the direction of rates will go down, down, down. Are you here on CNBC, on the record, ready to say that trend is finally over? I'm saying to you, Brian, thank you again for remembering the past. And after being very bullish on treasuries, in other words, expecting the yields to go down substantially, I'm going to say for the first time on your network and on your program that the downward move is probably finished. The question is, how high are they going to rise? And the reason for that, Brian, is one, it is not because I look for the economy to be sharply improving during the months to come. But I think it is coming as a result of supply and demand in the Treasury bond market. The Biden administration indicates there is going to be a lot of spending. The president-elect said last week that he, should, he would expect trillions of dollars of new stimulus. This is on top of what they have had last year. And when you look at that and also the fact that over the last year, the dollar has been dropping the DXY measure of the dollar index has been weak and getting weaker. So the problem is that you have a problem with domestic buyers of treasuries. You also have a possibility that foreigners go on strike because after all, if the dollar is weakening, why should the foreign investors buy US treasuries and take a double loss with rising yields and a weaker dollar? So all of those lead me to believe. Well, let, let me let me maybe Shri jump in before we get to Chris and and sort of semi answer your own question to have you respond to it. Maybe it's because as much debt as we've got, highest percentage of debt to GDP since World War II, that there's 15 plus trillion in interest rates around the world which have negative real yields. So you know we look much more attractive from a yield perspective, do we not? Because at least at one percent. We're at 1%. Uh, you're right. We did look very attractive, Brian, when the yield was even, let's say, 70 basis points positive, And the 10-year German Bund was about minus 65. But if you look at it today, the German yields have also risen. It's only about 47 basis points negative on the German side. That's the first part. The second is you also have to look at not only what is happening to U.S. Treasury yields, but what is happening to the currency. The Trump administration mm -hmm. has been very keen to have a weak dollar. They, have, they are having it. But the risk is that you can have a dollar slump in the new year. And that is the risk also for treasuries, Brian. Well, the chart shows the dollar has been weak. Chris, sit tight for one second. We're coming right back to you. But right now, we actually have a news alert in the bond market. Goes exactly to what we were talking about just now. Rick Santelli, the auction of 10 years. What's your grade, Professor? Well, I'll tell you my grade in a second, but I will tell you this. Your side of that argument, you're having wins on this auction because I give it an A. You could talk about the weak dollar. You could talk about all the sins we've committed from a balance sheet of the country standpoint. But we may be the cleanest shirt in the hamper because this auction just found huge demand. 38 billion of 10 years. It's the second reopening of an auction originally in November. And the yield point 1164. 
It was trading 117. So it, it not only turned the screws, meaning that the bid, the amount that was pushed back to move all the supply of this Dutch auction was at a lower yield and a higher price. 2.47 bid to cover above average, 62.2 indirects above average, 17.8 directs, the best all year uh, going back to December of 19. And if we look at the dealers, they only took 20%. That's a small amount they've taken since August. So no matter how you slice it, it was a solid auction. And it really does go to the general point that there's a lot of things going on in the world and the country. But the markets seem to be paying attention to things like how much money we're going to be spending because that's why rates are going up. Dollars stop going down as quick. And why did they step up to the auction? Brian, I think you could answer that. You know, you look around, even though we're committing some sins, we're not the only ones, and central banks outside of the U.S. are going to have bigger problems than us if rates do keep going up. Back to you, Sully. Yeah, absolutely. 15-plus trillion in, in negative real interest rates around the world. So however our low R's are, Professor Santelli, and by the way, it took me 49 years to get there, but I'll take the A. Rick, thank you very much. Chris Zaccarelli, now let's go back to you. And listen, we probably have a lot of viewers that are saying, well, why are you talking about bond yields? Who cares? You care because yields determine everything. The bond market is bigger than the stock market. It moves things more. How closely on the equity side are you watching interest rates? We're watching interest rates pretty closely because as you, as you pointed out, uh, all the markets are interconnected. And really, if you think about anything in finance, it's the risk-free rate that determines everything. So looking at the US treasuries, which is the current risk-free rate for the entire world, is very important. And so I think you know, what we're seeing right now is rates are starting to go slightly higher. Now, whether you believe they're going slightly higher because people are worried about what's happening within the, within the US and spending, and that's definitely the case, or you're worried about the dollar potentially weakening, and so you'll have less foreign buyers, all of those things have to, have to go into that formula in order to figure out where rates are going to be. But to your point, the stock market is also driven off of interest rates. To the extent that you have very interest rate sectors, the dynamic is more, uh, mm -hmm. is more clear. But for the rest of the market as well, just looking at valuations in general, all things being equal, the higher interest rates are, uh, the lower price to earnings ratio should be, and vice versa. Right now, price to earnings ratio is on a forward basis around 22 and a half times for the S&P 500. That's well above the long-term yeah. average of 16.7 times. So if interest rates and, keep and going that, higher, and that, Chris, there's a risk let me jump that. in for a second here. Let me, let me, Chris, let me jump in because that right there, you nailed it. The debate is, and this is going to be the fight on stocks, right? Interest rates that are higher need to bring multiples down. We're already at the high end of multiples. So the, so the bears will say, well, multiples and thus stock prices have to come down. The bears will say, no, 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 no. Higher rates are a sign of growth and a little inflation's a good thing. And higher rates and higher stock prices can go hand in hand. That's right. And, and they can go hand in hand to some extent. And that's the key. You know, you need that Goldilocks environment. You want rates going higher for the right reasons, which is increased growth. However, if rates go too high or go too high too fast, that could pose a risk for the stock market. For those people who are bullish for the stock market and want the market to keep going higher, it's a good thing for rates to slowly go higher. It's a bad thing if rates go higher much more quickly yeah. and, and, and then we have that shock to the valuations. Shri Kumar, last word to you. December 31st, we do this again. Are 10-year yields above or below 1.75%? Uh, I would say that they are below 1.75% at year-end, Brian. And an important thing to watch, and this is what was going to determine the year-end yield that you're talking about, 
whether the Fed steps in and has yield curve control, which means they start buying longer dated treasury securities. If they do that in a significant manner, they can for a while bring down the yield. That's why I wouldn't go haywires about looking for higher and higher yields, just as I was very careful in the past in terms of looking for yields to come down. Yep. Well, good point. And most of the Fed, and so why we listen to Steve Leishman and others, have said they're going to keep interest rates low for basically years to come. We'll see if that stays true. The bond market may have other ideas. Shri Kumar, Chris Zaccarelli, great rate debate, guys. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon. All right, switching gears. It's probably the hottest company and hottest stock in the world right now. Plug power. Shares are up, you know. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 84% in just seven trading days. Company making the second big deal in less than a week, announcing a 50-50 joint venture with Renault of France to develop an hydrogen-fueled commercial vehicles in Europe. And joining us now is Andy Marsh, president and CEO of Plug Power in a broadcast exclusive, joining us by phone. Andy, we really appreciate you joining us. I know you were just on with Jim and Mad Money less than a week ago. Well, there you are on the Zoom. Perfect. Uh, talking about the election and talking about a deal in South Korea. This deal appears to be even bigger in some future way because it's 50-50. Why Renault and how big do you think that European market just might be? So, uh, Brian, thank you for having me on. And why Renault is an easy answer. Renault is the second largest light commercial vehicle company in Europe. Uh, and they also are experts in battery electric vehicles, which is a critical technology when you marry it with fuel cells. And when you look at those two together, uh, it's a perfect marriage since we provide a full turnkey from the fuel cell to the hydrogen infrastructure to hydrogen. And in Europe, uh, they expect by the year 2030, there to be over 500,000 fuel cell electric vehicles, light commercial vehicles on the road. And this JV is targeting a third of that. And I agree, this could be bigger than the South Korea activity. And Plug has moved from being just a fuel cell manufacturer and hydrogen infrastructure manufacturer and hydrogen generation manufacturer. And now we're in the vehicle space with, uh, I think, the premier uh, player we could have picked to work with in Europe. How big is the addressable commercial market in Europe, roughly? And do you have the scale, Andy, the people, the facilities, the, the capital to scale up to meet that market? Well, I, I think when you start thinking about the capital, Brian, uh, we have the strongest balance sheet in this industry with over $3 billion. So we're well positioned. But we're also going to be able to leverage facilities that Renault already has in place. And you know, we'll be uh, using many of their employees 
and many of our folks will be supporting the activity. So we really do feel we have uh, the ability to meet this needs. But look, when you're growing like plug is growing, uh, you're going to need to add people. And I think over the coming months, you'll see additional executives joining the plug team to really help us grow out this business, both here in North America, Asia, and now Europe. Yeah. You got to get some of the snow off the ground up there in Latham. I was just there a couple of days ago. Andy, very quickly, listen, uh, I was just there in Ithaca. Truist as the highest price target on the street. I think it's 60 bucks. Good call by them. The stock has come up. You're now above every analyst target price. I know it's awesome for your team and your shareholders. Can you give comfort to those bears out there that are a little worried about the valuation? Well, when I look at it, uh, you know, people like Goldman Sachs are saying this is going to be a $10 trillion industry. And I think many folks know that Plug Power is the leader. And we've really built the first real business in the hydrogen industry with people like Walmart and Amazon. And I think folks recognize we actually can make things that work. And I think we're in a unique position uh, when you see that Europe's going to spend 20% of the recovery money on hydrogen and fuel cells. Uh, when you look at the Biden clean energy plan, fuel cells and hydrogen are highlighted. I think there's a great, great opportunities. Yeah. And I always like to highlight the fact it's not just governments, it's companies like Amazon, Walmart, Home Depot, who have strong sustainability plans, who can use all our products. The first hydrogen-powered snowplow, perhaps. Andy Marsh, <laughs> thank you very much. A plug power, a, <laughs> a big deal, 50-50 with Group Renault. We'll get you on next time, talk about bringing the cost curve down on green hydrogen, Andy. Thank you. Appreciate it, buddy. Fantastic. All right, thanks. coming up here. Oh, you're very welcome, Andy. Thank you. All right, epic first block. We got a lot more to do, though, here in the exchange. As more and more members of the president's staff resign, will any of them, some with big business and Wall Street backgrounds, be able to find a second act, or do they just mosey off into the sunset? Plus, oil and gas burning up the markets. Lately, the hottest sector, as rumors of its demise seem to have been, well, greatly exaggerated. But what stocks do you buy now? Goldman Sachs's Brian Singer is here. He will name names. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. All right, welcome back. Well, you can add another name to the list of folks bowing out of the Trump White House early. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf has officially resigned. He joins a growing list of officials who have quit in the wake of last week's deadly riots on Capitol Hill. The growing anti-Trump sentiment in his own circle was leading some to wonder if his former deputies, many with deep ties to business and Wall Street, will have a hard time finding their next job. Our next guest wrote an op-ed on that very topic and says, we already have a test case for how this could play out. Let's welcome in William Cohan, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, CNBC contributor. Uh, Bill, it's a pleasure to see you again. Good to have you on. I, um, I guess if Thank we're you, using Bill. Gary Cohn, who just signed, and I don't mean this insultingly to IBM or Gary Cohn, sort of a bizarre deal with IBM, then it, it might not be a big deal. What do you make of Gary Cohn? Do you think that was kind of a one-off by Big Blue? 
I mean, Gary obviously is the former number two at Goldman Sachs has always been in a milieu of important corporate clients in America and, and, and around the world. So, uh, you know, the thing that has me scratching my head is that he had just uh, agreed to do this SPAC, right? He had raised more than $800 million for this SPAC late last year. And now all of a sudden he's vice chairman of IBM. Uh, you know, on Wall Street, when you're vice chairman of something, that's sort of like the signal that your career is over. Um, the CEO of IBM is going out of his way to make sure that we all know that uh, uh, Gary's going to have a real job. Uh, so we'll see. I, it, it surprised me because, you know, big blue and big tech is not really Gary's thing. But, uh, you know, it certainly sounds good on the old resume, Brian. Well, it certainly does. And, you know, you got IBM there. Of course, Scaramucci, you also mentioned. I love how you, you've coined and, and, you know, and, and Anthony's a friend of mine and saying it's called a mooch, I guess, is now a term for an 11 day period. Right. Like a fortnight is now I'll see in a mooch, uh, Bill. That's right. um, you know, he's been he's been so critical of the president. I think that, as you note, has helped him as well. Wilbur Ross is in his 80s, probably would just go off onto his yacht in Palm Beach. What do you think is going to happen to the others, the, the Stephen Millers, the Mnuchins? You know, where do they go? What do they do? Look, I mean, first of all, I mean, the revolving door between finance and Washington has been open since, you know, Alexander Hamilton became Treasury Secretary. I mean, you know, he he started Bank of New York. Right. So this has been going on a very long time. Uh, usually it's that sort of one-way direction where people from Wall Street go to Washington. Uh, it CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts started going in the reverse direction in 1968 when Henry Fowler, the Treasury Secretary, became a partner at Goldman Sachs. And since then, it's been a revolving door. Uh, Steve Mnuchin uh, was a partner at Goldman Sachs, had his own hedge fund, his own private equity enterprise, uh, served on corporate boards. I'm sure there are you know, a lot of people out there, as distasteful as it might be to the people who voted for Joe Biden, uh, that somebody like Steve Mnuchin will probably end up with a sinecure uh, on Wall Street, either his own fund that he re resurrects again or somebody else's fund. Uh, you know, there are probably a lot of people out there, Brian, who are very happy that the corporate tax rate was cut from 35 to 21 percent. And mm -hmm. Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn were responsible for that. Well, they better be happy now, Bill, because as you know, it's it's probably going the other way in the next uh, year or two. We're going to find out. Great piece there. Vanity Fair, Bill Cohen. Thank you very much, Bill. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Happy New Year. Thank Take you, care. Brian. All right. Well, we've got a news alert out of where we just talked about. Washington. Kayla Tausche is here now with that. Kayla. 
Hey, Brian, while well, New York Senator Chuck Schumer is set to become the Democrats' majority leader in the Senate in just a matter of days, and he just sent a letter to colleagues outlining his top legislative priorities, and he says the first order of legislative business will be considering a new COVID relief proposal. We're expecting details from the president-elect later this week, but Schumer says that Democrats in the Senate expect to introduce a proposal with a few key elements, first increasing the amount of those direct checks to $2,000 per person. Second, additional funding for vaccine distribution. And third, uh, more assistance for state and local governments, which were notably uh, shut out of the last bipartisan relief package. Uh, certainly, Democrats had been pushing for more money in all of those areas, and Schumer vows to come back to the table and ask for and get more. He said that where they can, they will strive to make this work bipartisan. But even if they can't, that will not stop their progress. Brian, as for when this could all come to a head, well, we know that inauguration is next week, and we know that the state of Georgia has a January 22nd deadline, that's next Friday, to certify the results of the January 5th runoff, where two Democrats uh, won upset races in the state. So Schumer is saying that after the new class of Democratic senators get sworn in and seated, then he and the incoming vice president uh, will be floating and considering this new piece of legislation. Brian, back to you. Oh, breaking news out of D.C., Kayla Tausche, thank you. All right, coming up, it is the question everybody out there wants to know. Will the vaccines work against new strains of COVID, like the one that is ravaging South Africa right now? Meg Terrell up next with just that and a special CEO. We're back in two. Hello, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The CDC is planning to require proof of a negative COVID test before boarding for passengers on international flights coming to the country, starting in about two weeks. That's according to The Wall Street Journal and Reuters. It's an expansion of the existing testing requirement for passengers currently coming from the United Kingdom. According to The Washington Post, the day before the Capitol riots, the FBI office in Norfolk, Virginia, internally shared a raw intelligence report on an online discussion thread among extremists, explicitly, explicitly I should say, calling for violence the next day, saying, quote, go there ready for war. We get our president or we die, end quote. NBC News reports an angry Kevin McCarthy, the Republicans' leader in the House, told President Trump he should call and congratulate Joe Biden for winning the election. GOP leaders in the House do not plan on encouraging their members to vote against impeachment, with one source estimating up to a dozen Republicans may vote tomorrow to impeach the president. You are up to date. That's the news update. I'll send it back to you, Brian. All right, Sue Herrera, Sue, thank you very much. All right, coming up, many state citizens no doubt frustrated by the seemingly slow rollout of the vaccine. So if they want to learn some lessons on how to do it right, maybe they need to turn to West Virginia, almost heaven, when it comes to vaccine distribution. We'll talk about it next. And welcome back to The Exchange. The Trump administration issuing some new guidelines today that will lower the age of all who are eligible to receive a vaccine to 65. This is new COVID strains are spreading, especially in the Southern Hemisphere. So what can we expect from vaccines and treatments going forward? Meg Terrell joining us now live 
with more on that and a special guest, Meg. Well, Brian, thanks so much. And of course, there are two variants that we've been hearing about a lot lately uh, for the coronavirus. One, of course, uh, associated with the UK. It has now been identified in several states in the United States. And it's concerning because it appears to be potentially uh, more transmissible. Some say up to 50% more contagious. Now, there is another variant of concern as well, one that is associated with South Africa. Uh, that one we haven't heard about here in the US, but it's concerning because it could potentially affect how well our vaccines and drugs worked. And we actually talked about this this morning with Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks and their COVID antibody drug. Here's what he said. The South African variant, as you point out, is the one of concern. It has more dramatic mutations to that spike protein, which is the target of these. Theoretically, it could evade our medicines. Now, joining us to discuss this is Veer Biotechnology CEO George Skangos. They have an antibody drug for COVID that may not be vulnerable um, to this variant. George, thanks for being with us from the JP Morgan conference where you're going to be uh, presenting, we understand, in just about half an hour. Tell us about the antibody drug that you have in partnership with GlaxoSmithKline and why it might not be vulnerable to these variants. Was that luck or did you design it that way? And does that mean that for future variants, you might not be as vulnerable too? Sure, Meg. Uh, ha happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, we took a fundamentally different approach from our uh, to get our antibody than uh, was taken by Lilly or Regeneron or AZ. We deliberately chose an antibody that recognized a part of that spike protein that doesn't change. It's very hard for the virus to change. And that's shown by the fact that it's the same in COVID and SARS and many other coronaviruses. And we've been saying all along that that's a better way to deal with potential resistance than having two antibodies that bind to a region that changes quite frequently, which is true of both Lilly and Regeneron's cocktails. So, uh, you know, Dave Rick said that Lilly's antibodies uh, may not work against that South African variant. As far as we can tell, because Regeneron has actually published the sequence uh, of their antibodies and where they bind, um, probably one of Regeneron's antibodies keeps activity there and the other doesn't. Uh, there are other mutants circulating, the UK variant. There's a variant that came out of the mink issue that was in Denmark. Uh, there's the Scottish variant. So it's not just those two. There are other variants that are circulating, all of which are resistant to one or more of the antibodies uh, from other companies. Based on the sequence data, based on what we know so far, all of those variants should be susceptible to our antibody. We believe that our antibody will have activity against all of those. We're determining that now experimentally, but based on the sequence, which is all anybody has so far, it is likely that other antibodies will lose activity. Uh, we believe 7831 our lead antibody will retain activity against these and future variants. It's important to remember that this is the tip of the iceberg, <clears throat> you know, that uh, less than half of 1% of all of the viruses from infected people have been, have been sequenced. And so what we're seeing here is just uh, the beginning of what are inevitably going to be a large number of variants that uh, can evade many of the treatments. And we're hopeful that 7831 will be effective not only against the current uh, variants, but against future variants as well. That's scary to think about. Uh, we understand that you might have your phase three data relatively soon. What can you tell us about when you are expecting that? Yeah, we're very excited. We have two phase three trials going on. One uh, we're conducting a trial called Comet ICE, which is uh, testing the ability of our antibody to reduce hospitalization and death in mild to moderate patients, outpatients. 
Uh, and the second uh, is uh, being done in hospitalized patients as part of ACTIVE, which is the NIH-sponsored uh, trial. Uh, both of those trials will have meaningful data uh, very soon uh, now. Um, you know, technically, we've said this quarter, but we hope uh, earlier in the quarter. And uh, so we're pretty excited about the uh, potential for our, uh, anybody not only being refractory to resistant, but uh, again, I think in contrast to some of the other antibodies, not only being a potent neutralizer, blocking the ability of the virus to enter cells, but having the potent ability to kill cells that are already infective. And there are now uh, emerging data from a number of academic labs to say that that second property which uh, our antibody has quite strongly, is really important to maximize therapeutic efficacy. So we're pretty excited about uh, seeing the data. Hmm. So would you expect that your antibody might work better than the results that we've seen on the antibodies already on the market? Well, that's, that certainly is our hope, uh, you know, based on the preclinical data and based on what we expect. Um, that certainly is a possibility. Uh, of course, we, you know, we'll see when we actually get the data. But yeah, it was designed to have some substantial advantages over the uh, other, other antibodies that are in development. All right. Well, George, that's the time we have. And we know you have to get to your presentation at J.P. Morgan. We'll be listening. And we appreciate you being with us and look forward to those phase three results. Thanks again. Thank All right, Brian, back over to you. All right, Meg Terrell, Meg, thank you very much. Appreciate you bringing us the guest. All right, so let's stick with the topic of the vaccine because one of the biggest issues that we have seen is how slow the rollout has been in many states when it comes to actually getting the shots into people's arms. But it's not going terribly everywhere. Earlier today, HHS Secretary Azar praised two states for the reference. Leaders in some states have forged ahead with steps like this in very diverse settings and demonstrated real success. I'll just mention a couple, like Governor Lamont in Connecticut and Governor Justice in West Virginia. Well, with us now is one of those states is Dr. Clay Marsh, West Virginia's COVID-19 czar and vice president of West Virginia University. Dr. Clay Marsh, thank you very much for joining us. You know, your state, and I mean this with respect because uh, I'm from Winchester, Virginia. I'm right there. I mean, I hit a three iron into West Virginia. <laughs> is It is relatively small geographically, but it also has a lot of independent pharmacies. The mom and pops that used to be everywhere still exist in places, you know, like Morgantown and Berkeley, West Virginia and others. How much has that been able to help you streamline this important process? Well, thank you, Brian. And, and we certainly are very proud of the fact that we have been able to immunize um, over 85% of our citizens with the first doses that we've received from Operation Warp Speed. So certainly as we look at our supply chain to be able to handle the vaccine, we immediately uh, targeted pharmacies and pharmacists to protect the vaccine. But also, as you point out, we um, have over 50% of the pharmacies in West Virginia be privately owned. So we put together a network of all of these pharmacies that reached every front door in the state of West Virginia. And how many are left? Where do you stand with current doses? And I got to ask you this because we showed it in Louisiana on the ground. There was a story in the New York Times about New York State. Are you having to throw any away? We absolutely are not. So we have allocated every dose 
that we haven't vaccinated in somebody's arm. And we have, uh, again, 85% of the vaccines we've received for first dose we've uh, immunized, we've put in somebody's arm. And 83% of the second doses we've received, we've put vaccine in people's arm. We also will finish our nursing home population uh, before the end of the month. And that is really important because we know that 70% of West Virginia's deaths, I'm sorry, 50% of West Virginia's deaths are in nursing home residents. And 77.5% of West Virginia's deaths are in folks 70 and older. So we're really targeting these populations. So we have no vaccines that are going to waste. And we uh, have a critical um, mistake sort of form if we have a single dose of vaccine that's not administered in somebody's arm. And and this is an uncomfortable topic. Uh, It's a bioethical decision, doctor. I'm going to bring it up because it does matter. Uh, West Virginia also has one of the highest rates of obesity. We also know that next to age, weight, obesity, and all the things that go with it are probably the second highest comorbidity to COVID-19. In a state with a large population of younger people who are unfortunately obese, um, where, how do you manage some of these very difficult decisions about the order of how this goes? I think that's a really important question. And certainly we have taken from the advisory committee on immunization practices from CDC, from other countries like the UK and from our own epidemiology data. And what I would say is we know that morbid obesity is a substantial risk factor for severity of illness uh, from COVID-19. But when you look at the data from CDC, we know that in comparison to 18 to 29 year olds, age is really the most important predictor. So people that are 65 to 75 have a 90 times risk of death and a five times risk of hospitalization from 18 to 29 year olds with COVID. Um, Adults that are 75 to 85 have a 220 times risk of death and a uh, eight times risk of hospitalization and over 85 have a 630 times risk of death and a 13 times risk of hospitalization. So while we certainly are looking at other comorbidities, and as you suggest, morbid obesity is an important one, we are really Mm -hmm. targeting those people in the older age ranges because we have found in our own epidemiology uh, information in West Virginia, that's the group that's dying the most. It is. And it's uh, it is ravaged. The elderly, certainly. Dr. Clay Marsh doing it right there in West Virginia. Make sure those teachers are up on the list as well, doctor. We got to get those kids everywhere back in school to narrow that inequality gap. That's inequality gap. As you know, it's going to come in the next five to 10 years. That's for a different argument and a different interview. Dr. Marsh, great work. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Be well. All right. All right. Be well. On deck. Oil staying red hot. The stock's on fire. So what names may still have value for your hard-earned investment? Dollar, Goldman Sachs' Brian Singer is up on that. Plus, Treasury touting $25 billion in new money for rent relief, but a lot of questions on how renters and landlords actually get the money. Diana Olick is up next with answers. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Treasury has now begun doling out $25 billion in rental relief. It is part of the latest stimulus bill. That bill also extended the eviction moratorium to the end of this month. 
At least 90% of the funds must be used for current or past rent and utilities. But the question is, will it get to where it needs fast enough? Diana Olick joining us now from D.C. with more on this. Diana. Well, Brian, much like the COVID vaccine, it is up to the states entirely to disperse these funds. We spoke with the CEO of Realty Mogul, one of the largest real estate crowdfunding platforms. She said she is concerned that this will be a painfully slow process. I think it's staffing and systems, right? The states don't have systems to actually disperse this money. One of the brilliant things I think that happened with the PPP money was that was distributed through existing infrastructure. It was distributed through the banks. And what's happening is that certain states, like I mentioned, California and New York as examples, have the infrastructure. Other states don't have it. So they don't even have a system to track it and disperse it and a process. Realty Mogul has a 2.3 billion, billion portfolio of 15,000 multifamily units. Hellman says the larger properties her company is invested in have not been hit as hard, but the mom and pop landlords, they are in real trouble. For a lot of these small landlords, let's say they have five units and four out of the five aren't paying rent, they can't pay their mortgage. And so I think that the the big question is, how are the lenders reacting? Are the lenders going to give them enough time to get back on their feet? Hellman says she's also concerned $25 billion will not be enough. Interestingly, though, despite all this, she says current investment in multifamily is off the charts. I've never seen demand higher than where it's been. A lot of people who were investing in other classes, asset classes like hospitality or retail, they're moving away from those asset classes because they got hit very, very hard during COVID. Um, there's still tremendous demand for multifamily. People are spending more time in their apartments than ever before. And the other big one is interest rates. Now, low rates will allow for great returns, and that was the case in the last two quarters. But as rates are now rising, that may get a lot tougher. Brian. Very quickly, Danny, you mentioned $25 billion may not be enough. Do you expect more from the incoming Biden administration? Most are expecting more. The question is, will it be earmarked specifically for rent relief? That's what's so important about this $25 billion. The first stimulus bill did not give money directly to renters or to landlords. It just extended the moratorium. So we want to see more going straight to the renters and the landlords because they are shouldering this burden right now. Diane Olick, NDC, thank you very much. All right, so ahead. check out this mystery chart. Nearly doubling in the past three months. Goldman Sachs adding this energy name to its America's Conviction list. Who is that mystery chart? Well, Goldman's Brian Singer will come up next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go or just in another room of your house. If you're hiding from the rest of the family, download the CNBC app, Dow 26. We're back after this. Well, the energy sector getting absolutely walloped last year. The XLE down as much as 60% at the March low between crashing oil prices, lockdowns, pandemics, and ESG investors dumping oil stocks. Nothing could save investors from losing money. But last year's pain may be this year's gain. Energy is up almost 15% in just seven trading days. With names like ExxonMobil and Chevron leading the way. And your next guest is more bullish than most on how high oil prices can rise it says, use the motto, lead, when choosing the names to buy. Joining us now is Brian Singer, Goldman Sachs' senior equity research analyst for oil and gas. And Brian, I wish you was down at the Goldman Sachs conference in person, but it's good to see you and chat with you. Nonetheless, certainly oil's been hot for about three months now to what is the primary turner for this sentiment around this hated group? 
It's a great question and good to see you. Uh, I think uh, a lot of it is because there's some greater confidence that we're going to see oil demand recover. And it's our view that while that's happening, oil supply outside of OPEC will not. Um, and so you put the two together and if we were back to a place by the end of 2021, uh, where we've recovered all of the demand lost and we're back to 2019 levels, we think that could mean materially higher oil prices even after the rally that we've seen so far. Okay, yeah, and the Saudi surprise from OPEC with uh, Prince Abdul Abziz bin Salman surprising everybody with that million barrel a day cut, which takes place in February and March. But that's, you know, is, is that too already priced into the market, Brian? Or do you think that, that oil bulls have gotten ahead of themselves in any way? It's a really good question. And because, as you said, it has impacted and really shored up near-term prices. And I think when we think about the stocks and, and energy equities, what really actually matters is down the road, will we need more, the, will the world need OPEC to start producing more? And, and that's not obviously what's happened. Uh, but ultimately, as we see demand recover in the second half of this year, we think that's going to accommodate more OPEC production. That can start to bring up uh, oil futures further, and that could actually help to lead to a more sustainable rally uh, in the in, in the equities. Um, we, we, we are, are, are very bullish into next year um, from a pricing perspective. And uh, we also think that one of the key mm. reasons, and this was discussed at our global energy conference uh, last week, is that U.S. shale producers may be a little bit more hesitant to ramp up activity, and they'll have greater capital discipline than they have before. Put that together with multiple years yeah. of underinvestment that we've seen in long lead time projects, and I think you've got uh, a, a better environment shaping up for commodity and oil prices. Yeah, and you got a few stocks for the targets above the current price. You got e EOG, EQT, but quickly, Brian, we got about 45 seconds. Doesn't get a lot of love, but Hess, you like it. Hess has got the assets down in South America, kind of gets ignored here. Why is there so much value left at HES? Well, particularly if the back end of the forward curve in oil starts to move higher because there's greater confidence that maybe demand won't start to roll over uh, until the 2030s as opposed to the 2020s, there can be a lot more value for Hess's long lead time projects that you referred to, the Guyana expansion going to uh, uh, more than 3 million barrels a day, uh, ultimately, we think, from in, in the next decade. Um, and 9 billion barrels of which Hess has 30% discovered. Um, we think that's a very unique story outside of uh, shale in terms of longer lead time growth. And actually in the near term yep. with higher oil prices, Hess could have a better free cash flow profile than people think. All right, Brian Singer, bullish on Hess, bullish on oil. Brian, we appreciate you coming on. We'll see you in person at the next oil conference, I promise. Brian, take care. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.